that uh, dementia diagnosis is not the end of the world, um, that it's unfortunately very common. It's the sixth leading cause of death in the US. There's five and a half million people with dementia. You know, it's, it's affecting everyone in some kind of way. So it's, it's to, to normalize dementia and then it's not a horrible thing and it just is. And you just have to go with it and love your people as long as you can. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. In 2016, Sky Yardley, then 66, was diagnosed with early-stage Alzheimer's disease, an incurable and fatal condition. Sky and his wife Jane Dwinell decided to face Alzheimer's in their own way. The Vermont couple began blogging and speaking about Sky's increasing dementia in an effort to reduce stigma about the disease. Their blog was called Alzheimer's Canyon, which was Skye's description of a place that he described as having, quote, no trails, no landmarks, nothing. Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. and the leading cause of dementia. One in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. According to the Vermont chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, more than 13,000 Vermonters have Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia, and more than 25,000 friends and family are providing care. Sky Yardley died in February 2021. Jane Dwinell has now published a book, Alzheimer's Canyon, One Couple's Reflections on Living with Dementia. It is posthumously co-authored with her late husband. Jane Dwinell is a retired nurse, freelance writer, and Unitarian Universalist minister. She's the author of the book Birth Stories, which is based on her experience as a labor and delivery nurse at Gifford Hospital in Randolph, Vermont. Sky Yardley was a family mediator. Sky and Jane came on the Vermont Conversation in 2017 to talk about their Alzheimer's journey. I asked Sky to explain the meaning of the title of their blog and now book, Alzheimer's Canyon. This is what he said. Alzheimer's can be seen as a, you're headed downhill and you're not coming back. And um, at the same time, the, the environment that you're in is increasingly bizarre, strange, unusual beautiful, spectacular. Uh, and so in this, there's a, there's a piece in the blog that's continuing, uh, and it's a fictional, made-up journey of somebody who finds this Alzheimer's Canyon. Uh, I'd like to ask you to read from that essay called The Alzheimer's Canyon, The Arrival. Sure. Good afternoon, how can we help today? Asked the smiling AmeriCorps worker behind the counter. Well, I guess I could use a map or a guide or something, I respond. Of course. We have these, these guides to the canyon itself, also accommodations, or, or will you be camping in your RV? Uh, I don't have an RV, just my own little car. I only got here because of a detour on the interstate. Yes, well, we have options for you. 
For instance, you could try the homeless encampment in Area B past the dumpsters. They may have room for you under a piece of plastic. They're always getting new sheets in over there. Or if you prefer, the hotel may have a spot. It's $12,000 a month or maybe a waiting list. I really don't know. Uh, actually, I was trying to work some of the interactive exhibits over there, and I think they might be broken. Or maybe I'm not running them right. Oh, you're fine. They don't do anything unless you're a caregiver, the attendant grins. And unless you've got grandma out there in your RV, I don't guess you're a caregiver. So since you aren't, I guess you're maybe a sufferer. And we really don't have anything for sufferers. But I don't have an RV. If you're in the market, we have quite a good selection of gently used motorhomes right now in Area E. Can I just look at the canyon while I'm here? Of course. That's what this guide's all about. Oh, yeah, I answered. I saw that one. I couldn't make any sense out of it. The only English words on it said, start here. Exactly. It tells you everything you need to know. Start here. Sure, sir. But where? Right where you are. But wait, how do I find the overlook, the vista, whatever? Don't worry. You already found us. You're all set now. She's grinning again, but I'm getting a little irritated by this whole Alice in Wonderland routine. Look, have you even got a guide in English? Sir, of course it's in English. You read it yourself. No, no, no. You've got a big pile of typos here, young lady. See, it just says start here, and the rest of the map is blank. No trails, no landmarks, nothing. I can't even use my compass. It's totally useless. Sir, if you're anxious, I can get your prescription. In the meantime, you may want to get started. Started doing what? Man, I'm ready to be out of this place. Well, sir, everyone's path is different. We can't predict what yours will be like, except that it's all downhill from here. That was the late Sky Yardley reading an essay that he wrote that's now part of a book, Alzheimer's Canyon, by Jane Dwynell and Sky Yardley. I spoke with Jane Dwynell this week. I began by asking her to talk about how she and Sky met and to describe their life together. Well, I met Sky in 1984 when, uh, after I left Gifford, I owned a restaurant called The Corner Cafe. It was a good hippie vegetarian restaurant in Randolph. And Sky was my Thursday afternoon produce delivery guy. Well, you know, I just kept finding him really interesting and cute. And I finally asked him out and he agreed. And that was that, man, it was fast and the rest was history. He was living on a commune in the Northeast Kingdom. He dropped out of Amherst with one semester to go because he wanted to discover the real world. He headed to California to Esalen. Then he headed to Hawaii to be a taxi driver. And then he and some friends opened their own vegetarian restaurant. He came back east because he liked the seasons. He hiked the Appalachian Trail. And on the Appalachian Trail, he met this guy who lived on a commune in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And I, I love the story that he told me when he landed at the commune and they were having like zucchini and beets for dinner that they had grown. And he just thought it was the best thing ever, <laughs> which just makes me laugh. Um, 
What was the name of the commune and where was it? It was Frog Run Farm in East Charleston. And they we just celebrated uh, the 50th anniversary and there was a big party this summer and everybody came that was still around of celebrating the Frog Run Farm years. Hmm. So I uh, sold my restaurant and I moved to Frog Run Farm. And um, from there, we we bought 45 acres in Irisburg, had a had a organic off grid homestead. Um, when the kids were teenagers, we decided it was time to get out of the country and move to the city. We moved to Montpelier, city that it is. Um, then um, Hurricane Katrina happened. And at the same time, Sky and I were considering early retirement. And so we went to New Orleans to help rebuild because we had house building experience. And we fell in love with New Orleans and ended up buying property and building a house there. And for well, it wasn't quite 10 years, maybe eight years. Then we bought a houseboat in France on a lark. <laughs> and we spent our summers in France, cruising the canals and rivers of France and our winters in New Orleans, helping people rebuild because it took a long time and they're still rebuilding. Um, but then I noticed maybe about 2012, 2013, something wasn't quite right with Sky. And by the summer of 2015, when we were on the boat, he had lost the ability to really steer the boat correctly. He couldn't back it up. He was smashing into locks. And, and this is a guy that had, you know, he was driving a, a truck, a produce truck when I met him. He could back into any little tiny space and all of a sudden he just didn't seem to have any spatial skills and he had lost his sense of direction. And I had worked as a nurse in a memory care center um, briefly. And I thought, you know, this looks like dementia to me. And I started bothering him about getting tested and he was like, oh yeah, nothing's wrong. I'm, you know, I'm just need to, I need to focus. I need to focus and stop being so spaced out. And it wasn't until um, we were we were renovating our own house when he realized he couldn't do carpentry work anymore. And, and we had built six houses together and helped with all that in New Orleans. And he would find himself taking a measurement, writing it down, heading out to the lumber pile, putting the lumber on the sawhorse, getting the saw and having absolutely no idea what to do. So then he agreed to be tested. You first noticed things in 2012, and it's 2016 when you finally go to get tested. Right. And this was at the University of Vermont, the Memory Center there. What did they tell you? Um, well, first he had to go to a, a GP to be tested for all the other things that might be causing memory issues, like thyroid issues or syphilis. And so he went and got blood tests for all these things that were rare. He, he got an MRI, you know, just in case he had a brain tumor or something. Um, and all of that came back clear. The MRI was inconclusive. And so then the memory center had a whole battery of verbal testing that he did. We got interviewed, we each got interviewed by a psychologist. Um, then that was inconclusive. And so then he had a PET scan where 
that it showed that his brain was not taking up glucose the way it was supposed to. And that provided a diagnosis of probable early stage Alzheimer's because of course you can't actually diagnose Alzheimer's until one has an autopsy. And he was actually doing pretty well on the written and verbal exams, right? Completely, yes. And we returned to the memory center every, you know, they'd have us come every eight or nine months and he would do, do all those same battery of tests and score, you know, like the high score was 30 and he would always score 28, 29, 27. It was really weird. And the doctor would say, well, you're just fine. And Sky and I would look at each other and say, well, maybe not. <laughs> and for some reason, because dementia is such a bizarre disease that people don't really completely understand, Sky retained his intellectual capacity all the way to his death, even though he could no longer feed himself, dress himself, figure out how to get in bed, use the bathroom, any of those other things. His mind still, the intellect, they said at the, he, was, he spent his last year at the Arbors in Shelburne, and he told me once on the phone that they called him the professor. And I thought he was like, you know, this is another hallucination. And they did call him the professor because he, and he said to me, he said, you know, when they play trivia here, I have to keep my mouth shut because I know all the answers. <laughs> and he did. Very strange. That is really, I mean, it gives a sense of how strange this disease is, that it can leave intact you know, one of Sky's kind of superpowers, you know, which is he tested well, he's an extremely intelligent man, and he kept that part up, but everything else was sort of vanishing around it. Yep, everything hmm. else drifted away. So I want to talk about your decision to publicly blog this, his journey into dementia uh, with, um, you know, first the blog and now the book. Uh, you write, uh, you wrote on the blog, we started this blog as a way to erase the stigma attached to dementia and to increase understanding of the way it affects people on a day-to-day -day basis. People with dementia and their loved ones are not to be pitied or ignored, but to be treated with the full respect accorded to anyone and with the understanding that they can meaningfully participate in life and in society despite their disability. You know, it I'm struck by often when people are, you know, receive a serious diagnosis like Alzheimer's, um, they vanish from public view. They vanish from their circle of friends. Uh, they, you know, there is this instinct in our culture to kind of recede from public view, but you did the opposite. What made you decide to do that, to be so public about this degenerative disease? Well, it, this was all Sky's idea. He, he wanted to do what he could to erase the stigma of dementia. And what he really wanted to do, he wanted to find his people. He wanted to meet other people with dementia to be able to talk about it. And he, we didn't, we weren't having a lot of luck in Burlington doing that. And so I doing the blog was part of reaching out into the world to find his people. And 
after we started the blog, we then wrote a sermon and we went on a nationwide sermon tour for a year, speaking at 25 congregations from Maine to Washington state. And until he couldn't, but by the time the last one came along, he, he couldn't read anymore. Um, and he loved every minute of that because he got to meet other people with dementia and every congregation we went to, somebody came out that hadn't come out yet to say that they had been diagnosed with dementia. And this brought Sky such personal satisfaction. And uh, he was just so happy to do this and just talk about it. I mean, I think, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, nobody talked about cancer, heaven forfend, you know, and now look, it's cancer everywhere and you walk for cancer and you run for cancer and bike for cancer. And I think, you know, I think in another 20 or 30 years, dementia will be more acceptable as a diagnosis, as a life limiting diagnosis, the way cancer is. As you heard back from other people with dementia, both you know, from these this speaking tour, but also in the blog. What kind of stories did you hear from people? What were they going through? Um, well, they were very afraid to tell people that they would be shunned. Um, and they were also um, scared and puzzled and frustrated um, and they did find this sort of relief of being able to talk about it and, 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 and helping the other people in the congregation understand that I have dementia and that's why maybe I've been acting differently than what you would expect from me. Hmm. You write that after um, you finally got the diagnosis that Sky had early Alzheimer's in 2016, that you were both crying and rejoicing. Explain what you mean by that. Oh my God. It was such a relief to get the diagnosis that I wasn't, first of all, that I wasn't going crazy. There really was something wrong with Sky. Um, and also it, it wasn't anything he could control. I mean, Sky was a very laid back kind of guy who, you know, was, didn't always pay attention. Um, and that was sort of part of his charm was that he was very laid back. And for the couple of years before the diagnosis, when he was seemed so quote unquote spaced out, I was resentful that he was pulling away from me in our relationship or, you know, that he didn't care about me, that kind of thing. And so when I got the diagnosis, we got the diagnosis. It's like, oh, this guy couldn't help this. This is like, this is the new reality. Um, so it was like really awful because, okay, this is a terminal diagnosis and hey, he does have something wrong with him. I am so excited to like know what's wrong. How did it affect him to hear that diagnosis? Oh, he was devastated. He was completely devastated. Um, and also not surprised but mostly devastated because, you know, like, like he wrote in the Alzheimer's Canyon parable, he was making good time going down that highway and he really wasn't looking for a detour. And, uh, you know, this was a detour that he didn't want and he didn't expect. And 
he cried every day for the first, I don't know, three months, maybe, you know, not all day, but like at some point in the day and, you know, he was devastated. And then he was like, okay, this is what's happening and I'm going to embrace it and do what I can. He writes um, in one of the passages that he authored uh, of that, uh, he, he writes, quote, incurable, progressive and fatal. That's the Alzheimer's disease diagnosis, close quote. That's, how do you even, how did he even wrap his head around that? Those are, that's such a stark assessment. Right. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, stark is the word. And in a way, it made life easier for us it wasn't like you got a cancer diagnosis and we're going to try this and that, and we're going to have chemo, we're going to have surgery, we're going to have radiation, and maybe it'll go away and maybe it'll get better. Like we knew from the get-go, this was not going to get better. There was going to be nothing to do. Um, so it gave us a freedom to just live life. And, you know, I asked him, I said, okay, you know, bucket list, like, what do you want to do? And the only thing he wanted to do was go skiing out West. So we did. <laughs> You know, and he had a great time. I thought he'd get lost, but he didn't. <laughs> what else was on uh, your your joint bucket list that you guys immediately set about doing? That that was really it. Um, he he um, he he and our daughter Dana had hiked um, a big chunk of the long trail, and he hadn't quite finished it. So he finished. He had a little chunk to do. He did that. Um, but we had been really blessed. We had retired early about maybe eight, eight or nine years before this. And so we had done all that traveling in Europe and volunteering in New Orleans. And, you know, we, you know, I did keep asking at one point he said, maybe he'd like to go to Antarctica. And I was like, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and then, you know, he progressed too far for Antarctica. So someone tells you, and, and now we're moving to sort of some of your insights and your advice to others. Someone tells you that they have a life-changing diagnosis. How is the best way to respond? Um, don't give them advice. <laughs> um, don't leave them. Um, and just be there, you know, be a good listener. You know, people aren't great at listening. Um, and, and just companion somebody, ask them what they want to do. You know, do they want to go sailing or biking or read a book together or whatever, you know, it's somebody who's, you know, well, we're all dying. We just don't know when, um, but when somebody gets the actual diagnosis, it, it tends to, it may tend to have them wake up to their life and to have their loved ones around companioning them with that is like really important. You know, some of our friends and family kind of fell away and I'm grateful for the ones who stuck around. What gave Sky comfort um, once he told people? Um, well, I think like, well, always Sky was connected to the natural world. That was always very important to him. And 
the big thing that brought him comfort was riding his bike. We were living in Burlington and Burlington, you know, for those who know Burlington, there's a great bike path. And he would go ride that bike path every day and sit by the lake. And um, in one of the parks in Burlington, there's an accessible tree house that anybody can get into and climb up. And so he would sometimes do that. He lo always loved being in the woods. He would climb up into this tree and sit in the tree. And that's the, between the trees and the mountains and the water, that's where he found his spirituality. That's where he found the holy. And so he did that as, as long as he could, bless his heart. He, you know, he, he gradually lost strength and had to give up riding his bike, which was, he just was such a tragedy for him. And he took up going on long walks and then he lost the ability to do that as well. Jane, you and Skye co-wrote this blog, Alzheimer's Canyon, and Skye did it as long as he could. And I wonder if you could read his last post and just sort of tell us what was happening around the time that he wrote that. You began the blog in 2016 when he got his diagnosis. When was this written? This was written in um, the fall of 2019. Okay. Okay. Here in Northern Vermont, you ignore the changing of the seasons at your own peril. Nature always wins. She's the correct team to be on. Some things you have to do on time or you may end up miserable sliding across November ice on the highway. Other things you just do well because they wrestle themselves to a top spot in your neurosystems at just the right time. Lately, I haven't been doing so hot with either. It seems I've opened a stress account and a clever system to keep it topped up with automatic payments, only some of which I'm aware of at the time. Jane is more on top of the big picture, but dementia is taking its toll on the whole household. I often have trouble even with the simplest decisions. I have to laugh when I still hear my children, now in their 30s, trying to get a jump on the endless negotiations about what color shirt I'd like to wear, red or blue. Could this trick from years and years ago really work on me in present time? I think maybe so. I feel like there are so many different ways I'm going downward. I get a lot of enjoyment out of riding my bike, but at the same time, I feel like I'm getting weaker rather than stronger and having less balance rather than more balance. I'm at the intersection of what toddlers do when they're learning to walk. My hallucinations are not really settling down. Sometimes they feel like my friends. Other times they keep their distance and it's annoying and frustrating. In the middle of the night, I wake up and don't know where I am. I know who I am and who my family is for now, but I feel like I'm getting a taste of the time when I can't take those paths for granted. It sometimes takes what feels like a very long time to get reoriented to where I am. Am I in my house, my neighbor's house? Do I turn on the light? Do I get dressed? I turn to Jane, hold her hand and let her bring me back to reality. The world I'm trying to navigate is inconsistent, confusing, hard, and sometimes terrifying. Waking at midnight in a place that I don't know gives me a hint of how my life will be as the disintegration moves ahead. As Dylan Thomas said, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Talk about that a little bit, the rage, but also he mentions there the hallucinations 
um, what were those? And, and what was that feeling of rage that he had? Well, you know, like I said before, Sky was a very laid back guy and he, in, in, you know, we were together for 36 years and I never saw him angry. God, you know, he was the one who had to calm me down when I would get angry. But as his dementia progressed, he would periodically, he would, he would yell and he wasn't yelling at me. He was yelling at the universe. Like, I don't want to do this. I, you know, I'm tired of this. Can this please go away? Kind of rage. Um, and when the hallucinations started, they, they were initially scary to him because he thought they were real. His, his first hallucination was that he thought he was, we were in a hotel room in Texas and he thought he was in New Orleans in the middle of a Mardi Gras parade. And it seemed very real to him. Our friends were there and people were in costume and this was, you know, a, we'd spent a lot of Mardi Gras in New Orleans and he, he, it took me a long time to convince him that we were in a hotel room in Texas. And from there, the hallucinations just escalated. And most of them were really interesting and funny. And he loved them. He would describe, you know, when we were at our camp in Alberg, which is next to a big hay field, he was like, oh, there's a party going on in the hay field and there's music and food. Do you guys want to go? And we would all say, hey, Sky, that's a hay field and there's nothing going on in it. And he'd be so frustrated that we couldn't see what he saw. And, he, and the trees became alive to him that, that were actual beings that he could talk to. And they communicated to him without words. Um, and he, he became friends with his hallucinations. And sometimes he had bad hallucinations. Our house was broken into in the fall of 2019. And we weren't home, but we came home to a mess. Everything had been turned inside out. And so we would, he would periodically fear that somebody, he would hear think somebody was breaking in or he would think the water line he, he was big on that the water line had broken and we had to get up and fix the water line in the middle of the night or the toilet was broken or you know something like that or the police were outside well maybe you could read he has on page 193 um him describing his hallucinations if you could read us a few paragraphs of that sure um well, here, I'll just start here. I want to tell you about these creatures. First of all, what are they? They're not human and they're not not human. They all look different from each other and from humans, but somehow they're enough human-like that they're endearing. They're small. They're cute. They're watchful and quiet. They're very solid. I don't have to worry about them. They take care of themselves. One of them, Mr. Green, he brings along his own fun, sort of like cats. They spend time doing stuff we don't know about. He tends to be on the edge of the yard. He's lush and leafy, and sometimes he gets rough and rowdy and he shakes all over. That's half of him. The other half will back up and run at the other one like they're playing football. They both fall down and jump up and do it again. It's really funny. So in the way that Skye writes about these, He's sort of presenting them to an audience 
knowing that this is not what other people see and that this is perhaps not real you know he's kind of introducing these characters to us in a very matter-of-fact way uh, how did he move between the world of fantasy and reality and get back to reality when he needed to or was he unable to right he, he, he as as they escalated he didn't really need to come back to reality the only times when he needed to come back to reality is if the hallucination was scary um and those were like often in the middle of the night but in the daytime he would be so happy just to sit in the yard communing with these beings that he had a whole relationship with um and it was very peaceful and he and he loved it um as time went on once he was at the arbors and he would you know this was the pandemic and the lockdown and so i wasn't allowed to see him but we would talk on the phone and I would let him call me. Um, and whenever he called me, he was traveling. And he would tell me where he was and what he was doing. Or, you know, he might be in a panic. You know, one time he said he was at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris and he'd lost his passport and could I get him a new one? You know, I, it, it was always so entertaining. Or he was at the train station in White River and they were backing up the train. He'd be getting on it soon. He'd be home in a short time. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of people have the experience of loved ones with dementia, and the question always comes up when their, uh, you know, their loved one says things that are not true or that are a fantasy of some sort. They think their home is a vacation home or something like that. What should the response be? I, I understand there's a debate between going with it and not challenging them and stressing them out and saying, no, you're not in a vacation home, you're in your home. And then there's the desire to correct them and insist that they, you know, orient themselves to reality. What advice can you give? I'm in the improv theater crowd that you go along with whatever, wherever they are. And you don't argue with them because you're not going to get anywhere. And and the only time you need to try to redirect somebody is if they're doing something that's potentially dangerous. Um, otherwise, you know, I mean, it helps that my first college experience was in theater and I always loved improv. So, you know, I just kind of go along with them, like in these phone calls, you know, whatever, you know, I'd ask him questions and he'd answer them and, you know. I never tried to correct him. And the staff at the Arbors never did either. They were fabulous. So even the professionals were, would just go with it. They would let him kind of spin out these tales and um, not feel the need to ground him in our reality. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, as, as time went on, we, we um, graduated to Zoom calls and he didn't understand by then he didn't understand computers or zoom and it was so strange to him so it was often the staff member holding the ipad walking with sky up and down the corridors and sky was he was on the long trail or he was in canada or he was somewhere and and 
you know, the two of them would do the improv together and I would get to just like watch and listen on the iPad. And it was fun. You describe a lot your challenge as a caregiver. You would feel badly that you weren't patient enough. I wonder what advice you can share to other caregivers about what to do to sustain themselves over the course of a long degenerative illness. Well, you got to take care of yourself. That's the first thing, you know, whatever that is for you. Um, for me, I was grateful for one friend who met me once a month for lunch and we would go out and we'd have a bottle of wine and lunch and talk. And it was so great to like not have to be around dementia. Like we didn't talk about Sky. We talked about all kinds of other things. Um, I was grateful personally for, I was part of a caregiver support group that met on Zoom. It was people, uh, other retired ministers who were caregivers and we met on Zoom once a month. And that was a lifesaver, I think for all of us. Um, and that it's okay to not be with the person with dementia 24 hours a day. I mean, Sky, while he still could, he did a lot of volunteer work. He volunteered at the Flynn Theater and the Community Sailing Center and the Community Bike Center. And I never went with him. I was like, you know, while he can do this stuff on his own, he needs to do it on his own. And then I get to stay home and read a book or, you know, talk to friends or watch something on Netflix. <laughs> this was not your first experience with dementia. Your mother had dementia and you describe your trying to deal with her dementia. What did you learn from that experience that perhaps prepared you for you know, your husband going through this? Well, the, the, it's very different when it's your parent or then your partner. Um, it's a different relationship. Uh, my mother also got um, ugly would be her word. Um, she, she got angry and, um, and resentful about what was happening in her life. And she didn't like it and she took it out on me, which made it really hard for me. And she was very ungrateful about any help. Um, she was in an assisted living facility and she just no couldn't say a nice word about anybody. And she was just angry all the time. Uh, and it was, it was tough because, you know, she wasn't happy. And when she finally broke her hip and had enough wherewithal to tell me that she didn't want them to get her out of bed, she just wanted to die. I mean, she was 96, you know, and so she did. Um, but it was so refreshing to be with Sky, who, who wanted to talk about the end of his life, how he wanted that to go, and who was just completely honest with whatever was going on with him. Um, you know, it was, it was horrible the day he told me that he didn't want me to tell him everything anymore because it was too hard for him to process it if I was upset about something or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, I've lost my partner of all these years that I told everything to. And so I had to find a new way for myself. Um, and, and he realized that that was a loss as well. But it was great that he was honest enough to be able to say that to me. 
You have two kids, uh, Dana and Sayer. What was it like for them, this experience of their dad declining? Um, well, you, you really should ask them, but from my perspective, uh, we were living in a duplex in Burlington with Sayre and his partner, Emma, and they were very integral in kind of the day-to-day -day stuff, um, especially as Skye declined more severely and I, I wasn't sleeping. And so Sarah actually quit his job in the last, you know, sort of near the end so that, you know, he would be with Sky in the afternoon so I could have a nap kind of thing. Um, Dana lives in Montpelier and she would come once a week um, to do something with Sky and and initially early on they, they they were big on hiking together and so they hiked together as long as Sky was able to do that and then they you know they shared music Sky played the piano but with the dementia he was unable to because the the keys were doubled and so he couldn't really see to play but Dana would play and they would do music together they would play cards and. It was hard for both Dana and Sarah um, to to watch their father decline, and you know, like Sky said in that thing about choosing which color shirt to wear. I mean, that's what we did when the kids were two. <laughs> you know, do you want the red shirt or the blue shirt? And that they had to, you know, there's watch their dad become a child, even though he was a man. What do you hope that readers will take away from? your shared account of your journey into Alzheimer's Canyon? That a dementia diagnosis is not the end of the world. Um, that it's unfortunately very common. It's the sixth leading cause of death in the US. There's five and a half million people with dementia. You know, it's, it's affecting everyone in some kind of way. So is it's to, to normalize dementia and then it's not a horrible thing and it just is and you just have to go with it and love your people as long as you can. You write that the end is a beginning. Um, I wonder what has begun for you. <laughs> That's an excellent question. I am not sure um, actually because my life is now embroiled in the launch of this book, um, which officially comes out November 1st. And I got a lot of um, other radio interviews, book signings, uh, a dementia conference, all kinds of stuff scheduled. I'll be at the Phoenix bookstore on November 3rd at seven and that's in Burlington and the Br Bridgeside Books in Waterbury on the 5th at one o'clock. So right now I'm doing the book and We'll see in another whatever year when that settles down, if it does settle down. I want I want Sky to be famous. I mean, I there are so few voices of people with dementia. I, you know, I want him out there everywhere. And I guess that's what I'm doing now. The story begins with this descent into Alzheimer's Canyon from which there's no exit, but you've had to navigate out of Alzheimer's Canyon. What's been important to you in being able to kind of emerge from that uncharted landscape? Well, um, the, the love of the family and friends that stuck around 
Um, and I, I moved from the caregiver support group to the grief support group, um, which is also a bunch of my retired colleagues. We meet once a month. Um, we've all lost spouses recently. And, and that helps me know I'm not alone, that this is, at some point, this is what's gonna happen, that we all go through losses and we're all gonna lose our loved ones. And that's just part of life. That was Jane Dwynell, who, with her late husband, Sky Yardley, has written the new book, Alzheimer's Canyon, One Couple's Reflections on Living with Dementia. Before his death in February 2021, Sky was committed to bringing dementia out of the shadows and living life on his own terms. He hoped that by sharing his Alzheimer's journey, he could help others. It's only fitting that Sky have the last word here. I ended our Vermont conversation in 2017 by asking Skye, how do you make the most of life when you've been dealt such a difficult hand? You make the most of it by being living in the present, because that's something that I'm aware that that's where Alzheimer's does go. It grows, it changes, it gets worse. Um, But, and so... Ironically, I mean, one of the goals in my life has been to live in the present. You know, pay attention to the present. This is where, this is the only thing we have, is the present. Which is something that I think all humans could benefit from. And with Alzheimer's, it's, I guarantee it, we get that long, because you don't remember other things except the present. Sky, what gives you hope? One thing that gives me hope is that Alzheimer's is so slow. I'm just stunned at the, at the pace of the changes, which are really, really gradual. Gradual and intermittent. Um, so what, what it makes me think of is, a, is those glaciers that are coming down into the ocean and pieces will fall off. That's... That's what I feel like is going on in my brain. And luckily, what gives me hope is that I have 100 billion neurons in my brain, just like all of us do. And it takes a while (laughs) to, uh, you know, it's not like if you have a diagnosis of ALS, for instance, where you know that two years from now or three years from now, you won't be alive anymore. uh, We're going to have to... Uh, oh, there's three more things. <laughs> Can you uh, say them really things, quickly? You just have to know. Just say them quickly. Just read them. Okay, long-term memories last the longest. Uh, and the emotional flame that we have inside us lasts until we die. Well, The rest is just cognition. Sky Yardley and Jane Dwynell, I want to thank both of you for your courage and your eloquence on sharing your story on the Vermont Conversation.